0: I'm Tom McKinnon.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is How On Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 29th, 2012.
0: Coming up, we discuss distributed energy, how it can bring electricity to villages throughout the world that are way off the grid.
2: Bringing off the grid electricity to developing nations is a national security issue that affects all of us.
1: And we talk about observations astronomers will make of an occultation. By Pluto to study its atmosphere.
3: When Pluto passes in front of a star, we can use the faint shadow to study properties of Pluto.
1: Before we look at some of the recent news in science, I want to welcome Tom McKinnon back to the show. He's been living in Shenzhen, China for three months to take part in a business incubator program and build out his electric motorcycle manufacturing startup. Next week, we'll have a whole feature on electric vehicles, but for now, at least tell us what's your takeaway from China.
0: Well, I can't distill all of China into a soundbite, but, but one aspect of the place that's impossible to escape is its magnitude and speed. The, the cities are huge, and they're growing as fast as the cranes can lift the steel girders. <laughs> the, the factories are everywhere, and they're able to make just about anything faster and cheaper than anywhere else on the planet. And I'm happy to be home.
1: So much for China's economy slowing down on us. So, in fact, um, our headline begins with electric vehicles, right, Tom?
0: That's right. Uh, Indeed, last Thursday, the U.S. Senate approved the installation of electric vehicle charging stations in the U.S. Capitol building. The bill was supported by Senators Carl Levin of Michigan and Charles Schumer of New York. It stipulates that the stations will be paid for by the people who use them, so the taxpayers will not foot the bill. And on a more somber note, shares of the Chinese electric vehicle maker BYD plunged 6% yesterday when one of their cars was involved in a fatal accident. It just shows how just shows the precariousness of the electric vehicle business. What happened was a BYD electric taxi cab in Shenzhen, China, was struck by a drunken driver speeding over 100 miles an hour, killing the taxi driver and his two passengers. The outcome of the accident had nothing to do with the fact that the taxi was powered by electricity, but the stock market showed just how skittish they are about this new technology.
1: Many people don't let evidence get in the way of their beliefs and cultural values. That's clearly the case with climate change. A new study shows that Americans are divided about climate change not because they don't understand the science behind it, but because the science, or the scientific consensus, doesn't fit their cultural beliefs. According to the study, most people credit or dismiss scientific information on disputed issues based on whether the information strengthens or weakens their ties to others who share their values. It may come as a surprise that individuals with higher science comprehension are actually even better at fitting the evidence into their group commitments. In fact, the researchers show that science and math whizzes are more apt to think their way to conclusions that are better for them as individuals, but are not necessarily better for society. Dan Cahen is a professor of law and psychology at Yale University and a member of the research team. He said the study suggests the need for science communication strategies that reflect a more sophisticated understanding of cultural values. Namely, information about climate change must do more than communicate the scientific evidence. It must also create an environment in which no one feels as though they're betraying their cultural group if they accept any piece of Evidence that may seem to run counter to the group. That study was published on Sunday online in the journal Nature Climate Change.
0: Intercepting carbon dioxide at a coal plant's sto- smokestack to keep the greenhouse gas from heading into the atmosphere makes a lot of sense, at least on paper. But there are big technical and economic challenges. The conventional technology scrubs the flue gas using an ammonia based class of liquids called amines. It works. But the process saps about a third of the energy produced by the power plant. A group of scientists led by Baron Smith of UC Berkeley is investigating a new approach that can cut this energy penalty by at least 30%. Rather than using liquid am- amines to mop up the carbon dioxide, the researchers are betting on solid phase materials known as zeolites. Using computer simulation, the researchers analyzed 4 million zeolite structures from a database at Rice University. This Herculean computational task was made possible by an interesting twist. The group used specialized computer hardware, known as graphical processing units, that were designed for computer gaming. Serendipitously, these computer chips are as blazingly fast at quantum chemical calculations as they are at killing Klingons in computer games. Smith estimates that using the computer chips reduced the time for a chemical simulation from 10 days to 2 seconds. The Berkeley database of zeolite materials is being coupled to a computer model of a full power plant to figure out how well they work at the system level. The study was published May 27th in the journal Nature Materials. Thanks to Jim Pullen for that story.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. Many of us city dwellers love to escape to the mountains where we can see so many more stars at night without the glare of nighttime lights. But think what it would be like if you were among the 1.5 billion people around the world who live without electricity or without access to centralized electricity. Having no lights at night keeps many of them poor and illiterate. children can't do homework, farmers can't continue working, and businesses must shut down early for starters. Many families use kerosene lamps, a source of deadly indoor air pollution. Today in the studio, we have two experts who are trying to bring distributed or centralized energy to such homes and villages. One of them is Rachel Kleinfeld, co-author of the new book, Let There Be Light, Electrifying the Developing World with Markets and Distributed Energy. She's CEO of the Truman National Security Project. And also in the studio with us is Stephen Katsaros. Founder of Nocaro, a startup company based in Denver that makes solar LED light bulbs, which he brought into the studio, by the way. Rachel and Steve, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Rachel, let me start with you. Just give us a sense of what is distributed or centralized energy.
2: Sure. So it's distributed or centralized. Those are the two different kinds of energy. We all have centralized here in America, or most of us do. That's where there's a big power plant somewhere, largely um, far away or maybe one per city. You turn on a light, it brings energy to you through wires decentralized is not connected to a large power plant. So the scientists will argue about exactly what level of of energy that is. But for those of us who are just um, regular people, that's solar, that's small dams, that's all sorts of different ways of generating energy that aren't connected to a big power plant. I mean, you can't have solar,
1: like solar thermal that are huge projects that are connected to the grid. But you're talking about really
2: localized. Basically, right. if there's no grid or if the grid is very small, a neighborhood-based grid, we call it mm-hmm. decentralized energy or distributed energy.
1: And for either of you, how about Steve um, Katsaros? So why does this tie in so much to what you both call energy poverty?
4: Well, um, energy poverty just looks at, you said 1.5 billion people live without electricity. And, you know, it's a cycle of poverty that just continues to repeat itself because what they're doing is people need light at night. They're spending an inordinate amount of money on kerosene primarily or candles to get light in the evening. Um, So the poverty cycle is disrupted with new technologies in our opinion or in my opinion.
1: And, Rachel, I think you mentioned in the book that, for instance, in Afghanistan, up to 90 percent of people don't have that access and something like 80 percent in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is a huge. Issue.
2: This is a huge, huge issue that we don't think about much in the developed world. But, for instance, we've spent billions of dollars trying to cure malaria around the world. We've even invented a genetically engineered mosquito that can't carry malaria because we care about that problem so much. Malaria kills about one million people a year. Mm. The the after effects of not having clean energy, the coughing, the lung damage, the deaths caused by the energy problem in the developing world, that kills one and a half million people a year, and yet we give it very little attention. And Steve, why don't you bring us right to um, the home, actually, of
1: you know somewhere where they're actually using the Nocaro light bulbs and how this is sure. or, or well, could be changing. These locations
4: are, are all over the world. It might surprise some of the listeners to know that there's 18,000 homes on the Navajo Nation without electricity. Uh, moving over to uh, India, it's more like 300 million. Mm-hmm. Nigeria is 70 million. Um, so... I I'll speak maybe about a personal experience in Kenya um in the Rift Valley where I've been in a lot of the manyatas is what a home is called there and you see a small kerosene tin lamp in the middle of the home you see a three stone fire which is burning biomass for cooking and um the kerosene lamp is providing the light well um by providing a small scale solar um lighting alternative like our no light solar light bulb you're you're able to rid the environment uh, in that home of the kerosene pollution. Now, other pollution still exists with the fire, but mm-hmm. it's a lot cleaner. It's a lot brighter. It's um, a renewable that just keeps running um, day after day after day. Instead of having to make trips out to go get kerosene, be and you know be subject to the fires and other issues with um, with burning something in close proximity to humans.
1: Runs day after day after day, provided there's solar. Energy,
4: right? Yeah, and there is. I mean, on a cloudy day, it just doesn't last as long, and and that's the reality. It's hard to get a sunburn uh, when it's raining, so, <laughs> and
1: not much of a problem in sub-Saharan yeah, but, Africa. anyway, But to right?
4: be honest, a, a, a huge amount of the um, the world's energy poor are located in the equatorial region, where um, sun is actually the 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 you know where the the strength of the sun is is quite constant and quite strong.
1: And are you seeing much? Adoption at the local level. I mean, I know, and Rachel, you talked about this in your book, "Let There Be Light," that a lot of projects have failed, well-intended as they've been. You know, it's basically white guys or women from here bringing some technology to poor villages and then pulling out, maybe not intentionally. But what what seems to have failed, and why, and what do you think is working better?
2: Sure. Well. I don't really care about the race of who brings it, but I care a lot about whether it stays and is sustainable on the ground in those countries. And one of the issues with charity is that it doesn't scale, any kind of charity. So good people raise some money, they bring lights to the developing world, they then give away those lights or they give away that energy source, and then they leave. Well, maybe that one village does wonderfully. Maybe that one village has energy for its hospital and its schools and all sorts of things. Even if the project works perfectly, it's one village and then you need to do it all over again raise the money again it can't scale business and markets can scale and the poor spend a huge amount of money on this market in fact the global market in the developing world alone for energy is bigger than the global soft drink market it's bigger than the global makeup market so there's <laughs> so a if lot you look of at money that is an made. opportunity yep. Right. yep
4: yeah and and maybe I'll chime in and just say that uh you know, we are a for-profit company by design. At at the inception of Nocaro, I had the opportunity to set up a non-profit or a for-profit. We set it up as a for-profit for exactly what Rachel's book promotes, and, and it's a very important book. I highly uh, recommend anybody um, interested in, in national security or just the quality of human life uh, pick a copy up. But uh, for, from my perspective, we now have relationships that um, are worldwide that, that, are, that, that can be bring these through their existing distribution to people who need them most, and that's critical.
1: And are you guys self-funded, or did you get some sort of angel funding? I know a lot of the models of the so-called social ventures are for profit, but we're, for we're social unique.
4: Impact. Other other um, people in this industry have raised upwards of $15 million. Uh, I funded this and um, did so on $70,000, and it's been self-financing for, since the second month. It's something that, um, that I, I believe in.
1: And with the little light that you have, is it pretty much maintenance-free? Because it seems also a lot of the problem is maybe there is money to continue with these kind of projects, but they just, you know, locals don't quite know how to keep them up. There's no IT manager yeah. in the village. So what about with these?
4: From, from my perspective, it's important to just have everything be self-contained without wires, and anything that is uh, wear, a component that wears out should be locally replaceable. And what's the cost to a family? Uh, in India, it's about five nine nine rupees, which is twelve dollars. In Haiti, it's about twelve dollars. In Mexico, it's about fourteen dollars at the end retail price.
1: Because here LEDs are a lot more expensive than traditional
4: This is a different. Bulbs, this is a different right? thing. This mm-hmm. is a very small scale. Uh, in it, from a Western context, it wouldn't be enough light for for you to feel comfortable um, with. But in, in comparison to the baseline, which is kerosene or candles, it's, it's an enormous amount of light. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, Rachel, co-author of Let There Be Light, um, maybe take us to India or Bangladesh. I know you've done a lot of
2: work in both of those places where you have seen a difference. Absolutely. Well, take Bangladesh, for instance. You've got a um, large, large population of extremely poor people. If you go into one of those One of their huts in Bangladesh, there's probably a woman, maybe about 35 years old, who's coughing over a dung fire. When that woman dies at about 40 from lung problems of some sort, her child ends up an orphan. What does Mm -hmm. that child then do? Well, if she's a girl, she probably has never been to school. She's probably never gotten educated. She then goes and works in a local brick kiln or something where Mm -hmm. her life is very, very short. If she's a boy, she might end up in a madrasa where um, people who are fairly radical might teach that boy and give him some food, let him live, but he might then become radicalized. Bangladesh has a heavily Muslim population with some radical elements to it. Well, then you get a national security issue because the poverty problems start um, metastasizing Mm. with issues of radicalization and create real issues for countries like the United States. And, Steve, maybe in closing, just what's a key message you would want people to take away,
1: given you founded this and invented the bowl itself?
4: Um, from from Nokara's perspective is to spread the word about alternatives for 20% of the world's population um, and make sure you, you, you read this book.
1: <laughs> well, thank you both. That was Rachel Kleinfeld, co-author with Drew Sloan of the new book, Let There Be Light, and Stephen Katsaros, founder of Nocaro. For more information about the book, you can go to trumanproject.org book, and you can find Steve's company at nocaro.com. That's N-O-K-E-R-O.com. Thanks again.
2: Thank you.
0: These are good times for watching rare solar system events. Last week there was a solar eclipse, and next week's double header is a lunar eclipse and a transit of Venus, where Venus can be seen moving across the disk of the sun. However, next week there is yet another solar system event of one object moving in front of another that you may not have heard about and is not visible without the aid of a telescope. On June 4th, Pluto will pass in front of a relatively bright star. It's called an an occultation event, and it will send teams of astronomers scrambling around the world to observe it. One team member is How on Earth's own Joel Parker, who will be deployed to an observatory in New Zealand to observe the occultation. Joel, an astrophysicist, leaves tomorrow, but he's with us today to tell us about the occultation and why scientists are interested in observing it. So, Joel, let's get started by just telling us a bit more about uh, what an occultation is. Well,
3: an occultation is basically when something moves in front of something else. So, uh, in a way, when we have a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, that's because the sunlight is being blocked by either the Earth or the Moon. In this case, the occultation is when Pluto is passing in front of a star. Uh, any planet could be passing in front of a bright star. That's an occultation. And uh, so basically uh, that casts a very, very faint shadow going across the Earth.
0: And uh, you have two very tiny objects, uh, one of which you can only see with a telescope. Uh, how, how did uh, <laughs> scientists know this was going to happen? Well, actually, uh,
3: both the star and Pluto are so faint that you need a telescope to see them. Uh, we know the positions of uh, The stars in the sky, many, many of the stars, and also the position of Pluto, so you can kind of uh, predict ahead when Pluto might pass in front of a star. So you look for a star that is relatively bright, so you get a lot of good signal, and when you find one good case of this, uh, you may want to try to observe it.
0: Okay, so what are you going to do down there in New
3: Zealand? How are you going to make these measurements? Well, uh, I'm basically a hired gun. I'm not a Pluto... Atmospheric scientist by trade, but I've done a lot of observing, so I'm going to be helping out the team that does these type of uh, deployment portable occultations. Uh, I'll be going down with a case that has a a camera with a GPS timer and a special laptop with software. We're going to go down to an observatory in New Zealand on Mount John that's about three hours out of Christchurch. Put our camera on the back of one of their telescopes and try to do an uh, observation of this with very fast timing, almost like doing a video of the occultation so we can measure it as it happens.
0: And uh, why do you have to go all the way to New Zealand uh, to make this measurement?
3: Well, the the shadow of Pluto is going to go wherever it happens to go. And in this case, uh, the prediction for the shadow is going to be roughly in the New Zealand to Australia area so that's we're, we're going it's like going where the money is you you go where the shadow is and so you have a scientist in in australia as well um uh, distributed about yeah we uh we have uh several teams um from our institute and also uh people volunteering amateur astronomers who may live in the area and teams from other institutions who all go along the predicted path of the shadow to see if they can uh make the measurements Okay, and so what is it you hope to learn from this? Well, when uh, Pluto passes in front of a star, you can think of the star as kind of a light source, a little beacon behind Pluto. And as Pluto passes in front of the star, the starlight will dim uh, due to Pluto's atmosphere, kind of uh, dimming it. It can even redden it a little bit or change the color of the light, just like in a sunset. Uh, If Pluto had no atmosphere, you would just see... Uh, Pluto pass in front of the star, and the star would blink out for a while while it was behind Pluto, then blink back. And using that, you could measure, for instance, the diameter of Pluto very accurately, if you have a really good uh, timing measurement. The fact that Pluto has an atmosphere, we can study even more. We can study about the atmosphere of Pluto, even though we can't resolve Pluto itself uh, we can study things about the density and the extent of the atmosphere.
0: So, what uh, what do scientists uh, at least speculate of the composition of the the plu- Plutotian atmosphere Plutonian, <laughs> Plutonian. Plutonian atmosphere? Plutonian um, atmosphere, a
3: lot of methane. There's there's a lot of chemistry that goes on in the Pluto atmosphere. And again, like I said, I'm not an atmospheric scientist. In a way, I'm, you know, I've done ground-based observing, uh, observing, so I can help out with these things. Uh, and I can help those who, uh, who are really the atmospheric scientists, but uh, I'm not going to actually do the uh, detailed analysis of the atmospheric data.
0: But uh, I would guess uh, knowing the composition of the atmosphere, is was going to say something about the composition of the planet. Is this going to lead back to the origins of the solar system, perhaps? It, it, it does. It
3: connects all... There, there are two prongs here. It, it, it's inherent information about Pluto and its atmosphere, but also it's useful for planning for the New Horizons mission, which is going to be flying by Pluto. And any advance information we have about what the status of the atmosphere is will help in the planning of the observations we make with the spacecraft as it flies by Pluto. And uh, this New Horizons mission, has it already launched? It's already launched. It's been in cruise for several years, and it will fly by Pluto. Closest approach will be in July uh, uh, 2014. Um, sorry, 2015, and uh, but for uh, several months before that closest flyby, it will be getting images better than the best images from the Hubble Space Telescope.
0: And you still have the ability to to upload instructions to it based on what you uh, you find uh, we're, from this mission? We're deep in the planning
3: process right now, so we can still make adjustments if necessary. But so far, uh, Pluto's atmosphere, we, we have a good handle on how things are going. And
0: so... Uh As every school child knows, uh, Pluto recently got uh, downgraded. I don't know. Do you want to make any comments about that? Pluto is what it is, regardless of what you call
3: it. Uh, You can put it in a different box for classification. You can call it a planet. You can call it a dwarf planet. Uh, I I think of Pluto, uh, it's part of a collection of asteroids or or bodies called the Kuiper Belt, uh, which are um, kind of like an asteroid ring outside of the orbit of Neptune. It used to be called a planet. It's also a Kuiper Belt object. I think of Pluto as dual citizenship.
0: (laughs) Okay, that was How on Earth. Joel Parker from the Boulder office of the Southwest Research Institute talking about the upcoming observation of the stellar occultation by Pluto to study Pluto's atmosphere. He'll be leaving for New Zealand tomorrow. Thanks, Joel.
3: Thank you.
1: That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Jim Pullen.
0: Joel Parker is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Glass Harmonica.
1: Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
0: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at three zero three. 4479911 for how on Earth the KGNU Science Show I'm Tom McKinnon. and I'm Susan Moran